Please take your Bibles and uh, turn to the uh, little book of Haggai in the Old Testament. Now, let me tell you the easiest way to get to it. Uh, go to the very last book of the Old Testament, which is Malachi. And then uh, go for Zechariah, then you hit Haggai. So uh, go to the last book, Malachi, and then just go uh, back to Zechariah, then you hit Haggai. It's a little book of only uh, uh, two chapters. And you know, as my, as my custom is to share uh, devotional uh, prior to going into the uh, Lord's Supper. And I would like to do that uh, uh, this morning. Matter of fact, I had uh, planned to share one thing this morning. And uh, it was either Wednesday or Thursday of this past week while we were still in Maryland visiting my wife's family. The Lord just impressed uh, this truth upon me. As just a word, uh, I believe he would like to give to our church family uh, through your senior pastor today. A, a word of uh, challenge, but also a word of promise, especially as we enter a new year, the year of uh, 2015. Now, let me just give you a little background to the book. Uh, you know, I don't want to be too technical here, but I think uh, if you understand the background, the setting, it will give you a greater appreciation of uh, the truths that we'll look at in our devotional this morning. But uh, Haggai uh, was a prophet of God. He ministered to the uh, Jews, to the children of God, who had returned uh, to Jerusalem following their 70-year captivity in Babylon. Uh, Now, take your Bibles. uh, Now, stay there in Haggai. Mark it there. But go back to 2 Chronicles. I just want us to sort of refresh ourselves historically here. Now, why did the Babylonian captivity occur? Why did God allow His people uh, to go into slavery for seven years? And, of course, you know it was their sin. And let's just be reminded of that. The very last chapter of Second Chronicles, chapter 36. Let's begin reading at verse 14. It just sort of gives a summary of uh, this period in Israel's history when they had turned their back on God, uh, which caused God to bring His disciplining hand down on them. He says, verse 14, Furthermore, all the officials of the priest and the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord. That was the temple which He had sanctified in Jerusalem. And the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by His messengers, because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers or the prophets of God, despised His words, and scoffed at His prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people, until there was no remedy. Therefore... He brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. And all the articles of the house of God, the temple, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, burned the temple, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its fortified buildings with fire, and destroyed all its valuable articles. 
And those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon. And they were servants to him and to his sons and to the rule of the king of Persia. So the Jews that Haggai is ministering to is following the Babylonian captivity. Uh, The captivity itself began, we know, in 606 B.C. And then the first... uh, 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 deportation of the Jews took place at that time. And then after 70 years, uh, actually Cyrus was king of Persia, and he gave a decree that allowed them uh, to return. Uh, let me mention this something very fascinating. I think you'll find this interesting about Cyrus, the king of uh, Persia. 150 years before he was born, Isaiah the prophet prophesied his very name, that he would be the one to reorder the building of the temple. Let me just read that prophecy for you in Isaiah 44, verse 28. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple your foundation will be laid. So the children of Israel, they they return to Jerusalem. Uh, They begin to uh, rebuild uh, the temple. But after laying the foundation... Uh, the work is abandoned. They just, they just stop because of opposition from adversaries and, and also because of their own indifference. And then 16 years later, after the work had stopped, God raises up Haggai the prophet. And he was uh, commissioned by God to stir up the people, to motivate them to get back to the task for which they were sent. And uh, that was to rebuild the temple, to reorder their priorities. Uh, Haggai has a very successful ministry, and uh, the people do re-engage in the work, and after four years of work, the temple is completed. Now, the book of Haggai itself, and this is where I want to focus this morning, it consists of four distinct messages, which are all uh, recorded by date uh, in the book itself. And, uh, and these four messages were given within a four-month period of time. And, and I believe these four messages uh, God wants to give to Edgewood Baptist uh, this morning as uh, we enter 2015. So let's, let's look at these. And the first message is contained in chapter 1. And it is the, uh, the primary message, the heart of the book, and it is a message of challenge. And it is a very... Simple message, and it's what? Rebuild the temple. Get back to what I called you here uh, to do. Uh, I hope you have your uh, Bibles open to Haggai. And um, let's just read uh, most of this first message. It doesn't need a lot of commentary. It's uh, pretty clear cut. Most of the prophets were very black and white as they challenged the people. Look at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says... The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Remember, what did I just tell you? How long had the work gone suspended? Sixteen years. Sixteen years. Verse 3, Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, It is time for you yourselves to dwell. He says, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. In other words, there's consequences to the actions and the decisions that you make. 
Verse 6, you have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, he says. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it, and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, and on the grain, on the new wine, and the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, he was the civil leader of the people, the governor, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. And how did they show reverence? Reverence by getting back to rebuilding the temple. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Jerubbabel, the son of Zelotiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. So what was the first message? It was one of challenge, rebuild the temple. Now let's apply this to today. They were called to rebuild a what? A physical temple as they were returning to their earthly home there in Jerusalem. Now today, God does not reside in a physical temple, in a building. He resides where? In us, in His people. We are the temple of God. We are the sanctuary of God. And so I think the simple application to us as we go into 2015, the challenge is, and let me make it simple, put God first. Will you put God first in 2015? In other words, this would be the New Testament equivalent to Matthew 6.33. Seek ye what? First, the kingdom of God, and then all these what? Other things will be added to you. Now you say, practically, how do you do that? Now folks, I'm a firm believer that it is God at work in us, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. We can do nothing apart from Him. But the Christian life is a relationship, and we are to reciprocate to God. And I think one of the keys in the Christian life is to be very deliberate and intentional in building certain spiritual disciplines that will provide God an opportunity to do and accomplish His work in and through your life. So let me just suggest several things that we could all do here this morning that I believe would make a significant difference in reordering our lives and our priorities and putting God first. How about starting right here? How about being committed, being intentional and deliberate, and developing a habit in 2015 where you give your first thought each day to God? 
In other words, when the alarm goes off, instead of, good Lord, it's morning already, how about, good morning, Lord? Here I am. I'm yours. I mean, before you put that first foot on the, on the floor, Lord, I'm surrendered to you. I'm committed to follow you. And as I seek to honor you, would you honor me by empowering me? How about giving God the first day of the week? In other words, making a commitment to make worship with God's people a priority. And I, and I, and I would add to that, not only a commitment to be in corporate worship, these services, but also being committed to be part of a small group. Uh, you've heard me say many times from this pulpit that I'm so thankful that God has provided a facility where we can all come together as one family to worship. But at the same time, I don't believe God ever intended for us to lose sight of the importance of small groups. And when I say small groups, here at Edgewood, that means getting involved in a Sunday school class. That means getting involved in one of our small group uh, ministries. And you know, we're making some changes this year. In the past, we've done three eight-week cycles uh, throughout the year of home fellowships where we scatter throughout the community and, and meet in homes. Uh, this year, we're changing that where uh, our small groups will all meet once a month throughout the entire year. And you'll be hearing more about that. You'll be hearing about who the host homes are. And I would encourage you to plug into that. I think that's another way you can demonstrate to God that you're putting Him first. Not only giving Him your first thought each day, but giving Him the first day of each week and being committed uh, to corporate and to small group uh, fellowship. How about the first 10% of your paycheck? You know, I've often shared with you, I don't think we give the tithe out of duty. It should be a a point of delight. Uh, And I think it's a starting place. I've never taught that the tithe, again, is something uh, legalistic that we're obligated to do. Again, I think it's a wonderful starting place to express our appreciation and adoration of God. And God has given us wonderful promises in His Word that if we will be faithful in giving that 10%, He will, what, open the windows of heaven to us and pour out a blessing that we will not be able to contain. And then how about giving Him the first consideration in every decision? In 2015, when I'm faced with decisions, when I come to a crossroads, I'm going to look to God first and foremost. Look to God in prayer. So the challenge is, let's put God first. Let's truly be submitted to His authority to serve His agenda. Uh, You've heard me share. I I always work this into a message on the first Sunday of the new year. It's a a spiritual habit that I've developed in my life, and I've always used it to challenge you. You know, I go to the book of Philippians. There are four chapters in Philippians. And in each chapter, you find what I believe is probably a wonderful New Year's resolution. And I use the beginning of every year... Uh, to take these four truths and to evaluate my life the previous year, which is always a time of great confession and repentance, uh, but also looking at where God grew me and then renewing that commitment going into the new year. And you see the first one in the very first chapter of Philippians where it says, for to me to live is what? Christ. And to die is gain. So the commitment to live for Christ 
in all circumstances, to live for Christ in all circumstances. Chapter 2, in the context of relating to one another, he says, let this mind or attitude be in you which was in Christ Jesus. So I'm to love like Christ in all relationships. And then in chapter 3, he talks about we're to press towards that goal of the prize of the high calling we have in Jesus. And so we're to look to Christ in all decisions. And we're to make that decision on the basis of what's going to bring us closer to God in accomplishing His, God, His goals and His agenda. And then when you go to chapter 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We're to lean on God in all challenges. So again, I take this opportunity to look back in 2014. What were the circumstances that God brought into my life? Did I utilize them as a tool to live for Christ, or did I whine and grumble and complain? I look back, did I love like Christ in all relationships? How did I do with my wife? How did I do with my children, the church family, with others? And renew that commitment going forward. And then that matter of looking to Christ in all decisions and leaning on Christ in all uh, challenges. So again, my challenge to the church family is... Let's build these spiritual disciplines in our life. Let's be intentional, deliberate, trusting that God will be at work in us, knowing that it's only by His grace, but because of who He is and what He accomplished for us through His death on Calvary's tree, He's worthy of our first thought every day. He's worthy of that first day of every week. He's worthy of that first 10% of every paycheck. He is worthy of that first consideration in every decision. He's worthy of me living for Him in every circumstance, loving like Him in all relationships, looking to Him in all decisions, and leaning on Him in all challenges. And then look at the, the second message. The second message is found in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, and it's really a message of, of promise and encouragement. And now, we won't read the entire thing. The heart of the message is found in verse 4. Look at verse 4. And now... Take courage, Jerubbabel declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land. Take courage, declares the Lord, and work. Why? Because I am what? With you. What a wonderful promise. What a wor wonderful word of encouragement. In other words, here it is. God is saying, if you will put me first, if you will commit yourself to renewing, to refining, to rebuilding the temple, which is your life as an offering to God through His grace and His power at work in you. God gives you a promise. I'm going to be with you. And yes, God is with you if you're a believer. But as I've asked you many times, is He living comfortably with you? And God is saying, if you make Him first, He will be with you in a very unique way to empower you, to go before you, to make your way clear, to be the guide that you need, to provide the empowerment that you need. In other words, to give you the grace to live for Him in all circumstances and to love like Him in even difficult relationships and to look to Him in uh, complicated decisions and to lean on Him in very uh, agonizing challenges in life. Uh, let me give you just an, an example how God showed Himself and proved Himself uh, to the Jews during this period of time. Uh, the, the historical setting for the book of uh, Haggai is the book of Ezra. That provides the historical setting. And as they begin to rebuild the temple, uh, the opposition rose up again that had stopped 
had to discourage them, and they reasoned for stopping the work 16 years previously. And the opposition, the adversaries, they sent letters to the king of Persia, uh, basically uh, telling him to stop the work. Uh, and, and, they were, and sharing a lot of lies about the, about the Jews, that they were really rebelling against the king, and uh, they were going to rise up again against him, and, and all of this stuff. Well, when they wrote the letters, guess who the king of Persia was at that time? Wasn't Cyrus anymore. It was Darius. Does anybody remember who Darius was? Darius was the king that threw Daniel in the lion's den. And he saw that miraculous deliverance of Daniel. And do you remember that? And as a result of that miraculous difference, what that he saw, he believed in God. He put his faith, he put his trust in God. So what Darius did, he sends back word, And he says, not only are you to leave these Jews alone and let them finish rebuilding the temple. Matter of fact, I'm taxing you and your taxes are going to pay for the building of the temple. So he just turned. And then, to show how serious this guy was, let me read to you a decree that he sent out. And remember, Persia was the world empire at this time. And he sends this decree out. It's found in Ezra 6. He says, and I issued a decree... That any man who violates this edict, what was the edict? Leave the Jews alone, let them finish the work, and you pay for it. That's the edict, through your taxes. He says, a timber shall be drawn from his house, and he shall be impaled on it. And his house shall be made a refuge heap on account of this. And may the God who caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who attempts to change it. So as to destroy this house of God in Jerusalem, I, Darius, have issued this decree that it be carried out with all diligence. And so what is the word to you and I? Put God first, and God says what? I'll be with you. I won't leave you, I won't forsake you, and I'll be there to provide all that you need. Look at the third message. It's found in chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. And it's a message simply pronouncing blessing on, uh, on the people of God. The heart of the message is found in verse 19. Look at that. It says, Is the seed still in the barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree? It has not borne fruit. Which doesn't sound very pleasant. Talking about tough times, bad circumstances. But here's the, prom- here's the blessing. Yet, this is God speaking, from this day on... I will bless you. That's the promise. Put God first. You put God first. I'll be with you to provide everything you need to accomplish my work, to accomplish my purposes, and I give you the ironclad guarantee and promise, I will bless you. And of course, when God blesses, it's always bless us to what? Be a blessing to others. It's not a selfish uh, reason that He gives it, but uh, He blesses us to turn and give grace and give comfort and give His life and love to others. Now, I don't have time to go into great detail here, but it's important for me to mention this. It was important for God to communicate that His blessing 
would be on the basis of His grace and mercy and not on their renewed efforts to rebuild the temple. And he does this by raising two questions in this third message. Uh, this relates to ceremonial laws. I don't want to get deeply into all of that. But the two questions are basically this. He raises the question, in their ceremonial law, if a holy garment touches something, uh, will it make it holy? And the answer is no. You know, if a holy garment, something that God is saying, if it touches something else, does it make it holy? The answer is no. Second question was, if a person who has been declared unclean touches another person, Uh, Does he make that person unclean? And the answer there is yes. In other words, uh, let me make something that's sort of complicated, simple. In other words, he's saying just because you're involved in God's work, just because you're committed to making me first in your life, don't think that that transmits to you some kind of special holiness. Don't think that God, therefore, is obligated to show you his favor. Matter of fact, it's just the opposite. Because you are unclean, everything you touch, he says, becomes unclean. And therefore, you are accepted by God on the basis of his what? Grace. And not his works. You do not do anything to win God's love. And there's also nothing you can do to lose God's love. It's God's grace. This basically is the Old Testament version of Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the what? Gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should what? Boast. So put God first. If you put God first, I'm going to be with you. Give you everything that you need to accomplish my work, my purposes. I give you the guarantee that I will bless you to be a blessing to others. And then look at the fourth message. It's a wonderful, wonderful message of assurance. It's the very end of the book, beginning at verse 20, and we'll read through verse 23. It says, Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Jerubbabel, that's the civil governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. And I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down. Everyone by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Jerubbabel, son of Zetiel, my servant, declares the Lord. And I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now you need a little bit of background to understand this wonderful prophecy. The prophecy was spoken, as I mentioned, to Jerubbabel, Jerubbabel, the governor, the civil leader of the people. And he, here's the most important thing for you to realize. He was of the royal line of David. He was a descendant of David. His great-grandfather was King Jehoiachin, who was a very evil man that was imprisoned by the Babylonians, and he died in Babylon. And I want you to listen to Jeremiah, a couple of verses out of Jeremiah 22 referring to uh, Jehoiachin. He says, As I live, declares the Lord, even though Jehoiachin, king of Judah, listen now, don't miss this, were a signet ring on my hand. Even though he were a signet ring on my hand, yet I would pull, it, pull you off. And I shall give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life. Yes, into the hands of those whom you dread, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hands of the Chaldeans. I shall hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. 
So this prophecy in Haggai is extremely significant because what God is doing, He's declaring, He is reversing the judgment pronounced on Jehoiachin when God removed him as a signet ring, and He's renewing His promise through Jerubbabel that the Davidic line, what, will not die out. That one day the family of David would produce a Savior who would defeat and rule the kingdoms of the world. Amen? See, that sig- what's a signet ring? It's a symbol of what? Power and authority. And God had given that power and authority to David and to the Davidic line. And because of Jehoiachin's evil and the people forsaking God, God says, I'm, I'm pulling it off and I'm throwing it, throwing it out away. And I'm throwing you into Babylon where you're going to die. So the question was, had God cut off His covenant love to the Davidic line? And here's this wonderful reversal of the judgment. And God renewing His covenant, renewing the promise that He would be faithful. And what a wonderful word for us as we go into 2015, that God will be faithful to us. Amen? That there's nothing that can touch us, that God can't turn for our ultimate good. And the greatest example you see that is right here in the Babylonian captivity. Uh, How God, through the judgment, eventually worked for the good of His people and renewed and restored Him. So as we enter the Lord's Supper this morning, that's my word to the Edgewood family. I believe that's God's word to the Edgewood family. The challenge is, and I trust you reflect upon this as we go into the Lord's Supper, Will you put God first in 2015, knowing that as you do, that God will be with you, that God will bless you, and that God will give you all the authority and the power that you need, again, to accomplish His purposes in your life. Let me ask the deacons to go ahead and and elders to take their places. But I'll let you know when we will begin. Give me just a few minutes. We come to the Lord's Supper. Um, We invite all who know the Lord Jesus Christ to to participate. Uh, You do not have to be a member of Edgewood Baptist Church. But this is for believers. Those who know Jesus. uh, Know those who have made Him first place in their lives. And know that He's with them. And has blessed them. And uh, this is one way we rejoice in what He's done uh, for us and in us and through us. And uh, the way we worship Him. And the Scripture tells us uh, that this supper was instituted on the night in which Jesus was portrayed. And we're told that uh, after He had given uh, thanks, He broke the bread and said what? This is my, what? Body given for you. He who knew no sin became sin on your behalf, that you might be made the righteousness of God in Him. In other words, when Jesus hung on that cross, God treated His beloved Son as if He had lived your sinful life. He took your punishment. He took your penalty. Why? So today... God could treat you as if you had lived His Son's sinless life. 
Because His blood, as we sang earlier, has what? Washed us as white as snow. We have no righteousness of our own, but that righteousness which is in Jesus Christ. And it's through that righteousness that's been deposited into our account that we come to God uh, to honor Him, uh, to please Him, and uh, to do His bidding. And then, of course, we're told after the supper, He took the cup and He said, This cup represents uh, the new covenant. Uh, that could actually read, that cost me my blood. And it did cost him his blood. And as we saw in the, our study in the book of Hebrews at the end of last year, uh, that word covenant is synonymous to last will and testament. And uh, God basically, through Christ, uh, offers three promises to those who put their faith in Jesus. Uh, pardon from all sin, uh, a purity of heart, a new heart that would love God, hunger and thirst after God. And His presence, that He would be with us, that He would take up residence, that we would become His temple, His sanctuary. And so we rejoice in His body that was given for us uh, to pay for the penalty of our sin. And then also His blood that secured our pardon, that new heart, uh, His presence that we enjoy this morning. So again, my challenge to you is, 2015, let it be a year where we rebuild the temple. And we're talking about the temple of our lives as an offering to God. Bow with me in prayer. Father, what a wonderful time to celebrate the Lord's Supper at the beginning of a new year. Thank you that you are our host this morning. You are here. You are present. And you are present to issue this challenge. And Father, as we reflect on the body and the blood of Jesus that was given for us and all that it accomplished for us, Lord, how could we give you any less than all that we are? How could we not make you first place in our lives to give you the first thought of every day, the first day of every week, the first consideration in every decision and even the first of our income as an expression of our love and our worship. And Lord, thank You for the promises that You've given us, that You will be with us, that You will bless us to be a blessing to others, and You will give us all the power and authority needed to accomplish Your work and Your purposes in and through our lives. So Lord, renew our hearts in You now, and we come to worship, to love You, and to remember, to remember who you are and what you did for us. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.